Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Get ready for Kazoo Fest 2015, taking place throughout Guelph between April 8th and 12th. Musical acts include Deerhoof, Homeshake, Last X, Fedre, Scott Merritt, Tyvek, Lido Pimienta, Absolutely Free, Jeffrey Lewis, and many, many more. There will be art by Sherry Boyle and Jen E. Norton, plus dance, print, multimedia, and much more. Visit kazookazoo.ca for ticket and schedule info, and do not miss Kazoo Fest in Guelph this April. Creative Control with Vish Khan. On this episode, a conversation with Sir Richard Bishop, a very gifted American guitar player who just put out a record on Drag City. It's called Tangier Session, and he's out on tour now, so it seemed like a good time to catch up. I've always wanted to talk to him, and this was it. This is the, this is the thing. This is what we did. So here it is. You'll hear some new music by uh, Sir Richard Bishop on the show and uh, hopefully gain some insight about him as well. So please enjoy myself and Sir Richard Bishop. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H.ca. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Richard Bishop is a tremendous and well-respected guitarist based in the state of Oregon. For close to 30 years, Bishop was a member of the renowned rock band Sun City Girls, but in 1998, John Fahey's Revenant Records released Salvador Cali, Bishop's first solo album. By now, various labels have gotten behind 11 Sir Richard Bishop records, including his lovely new LP, Tangier Sessions, which is out now via Drag City. 
He will be touring extensively throughout the United States in March and April, but he kicks off his trip in Vancouver at the Fox Cabaret on March 26th. Here to discuss some of these things is Sir Richard uh, Bishop. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm fine, Beach. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's nice to chat with you. Uh, where are you right now? I'm currently at my home in Portland. All right. So you, how long have you been in Portland? Oh, about, uh, I think about four years now, roughly. Oh, four years. Okay. What, where, and where were you before that? I was in Seattle uh, since 1990. So, uh, yeah. So I've been in the Northwest for quite a while. Okay. And what brought you to Portland? Um, just wanted to get out of Seattle. Um, it's a little bit cheaper down here, a little easier uh, to, to deal with. And, uh, I don't know, just a little more comfortable, I think. It's interesting to me that, so you were in Seattle around 1990, things exploded, so to speak, yeah. musically, and then you go to Portland, a lot of people talking about Portland now. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the reasons I'm going to these places. <laughs> it's just kind of, that's just kind of where I end up, but, uh... Yeah, I just and and I don't know how long I'll be in Portland either. I mean, I don't know what's next, but uh, you know, for now it's okay. And uh, there are a lot of people uh, moving here for various reasons, and uh, there is kind of a you know a young, vibrant hipster kind of scene, which would probably be enough to get me to move out pretty quick. <laughs> but uh, but for now, it's it's okay. I was only trying to imply that you yourself might be the cultural linchpin. I don't think so. <laughs> I think you're selling yourself short, Richard. It seems to me these movements start after you get to town. Where should I go next? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come to Guelph, Ontario? We could use some uh, some high profile action here. I have a friend in Guelph, so you know maybe that maybe that's uh, maybe that's the next step. I am going to be playing in Toronto uh, as part of this tour. Oh, so. you are okay. I didn't know that at the time that uh, I wrote that intro. When are you playing in Toronto? Uh, I don't have the dates in front of me, but uh, I think it's around. Uh, <clears throat> it's in the first week of April. Okay, like late, late, late of the first week or somewhere around there. Well, geez, we should steal you for a stop in Guelph or something. Where? Uh, who's your friend in Guelph? Uh, a guy named Doug Horn. Oh, you know Doug. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've known Doug for quite a while. Uh, how do you know Doug? Uh, he, was a, he was a Sun City Girl fan for many years. Maybe he still is. And uh, <laughs> early on, uh, he wrote me and I sent him some, uh, some cassettes, some old Sun City Girls cassettes that were kind of hard to find. And, and then uh, he ordered some more. And, and we just kind of kept in touch. And I usually see him... When I'm in Toronto, he usually comes to the shows. Nice. Um, so, yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah, Doug lives a couple blocks away from me. and he, oh, really? Yeah, he just, like, literally, he, he lives uh, right beside a, a path uh, that goes, like, between these two streets towards, like, a, a high school. <laughs> and he's got a chicken coop and a half pipe in his yard. Wow, that, that sounds great. <laughs> you should visit his home. And Doug and I have some uh, shared history with the Guelph Jazz Festival. We both served on the board of directors there. Oh, I had no idea. Great. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So that's a small world, I guess it is. Yeah, it is. Speaking of small things, uh, I came upon this uh, item recently. You have yourself a new smaller guitar? I do. What's the story with this small guitar? Well, it's it's uh, quite a story. It's, uh, it's a guitar I picked up in Geneva. Uh, I was in Geneva, la I guess it was last year, early last year, or maybe late 2013, now that I think about it. Uh, doing a residency there, and uh, I was looking for a small guitar to take traveling, and I just happened to find uh, this luthier shop uh, in Geneva who didn't have what I was looking for, but he took me in the back room and presented this very old, uh, what's called a parlor guitar, mm -hmm. that he said was at least from the 1890s, and uh, as soon as I started messing around with it, it just had some kind of energy to it that kind of took a hold of me and, and, and you know, kind of had power over me for a while. I couldn't really put it down. And uh, it was uh, it was quite expensive for, for me at the time, and uh, so I couldn't afford it, and I kept coming back to play it some more. And I, I, finally, I finally purchased it because uh, it was just one of those guitars that I figured this belongs to me. You know, I couldn't let anybody else have it. And, uh, you know, since then, I've taken it to a few people to have a look at it. And we've tried to find out some more history of who made it. And we really can't. But uh, I recently took it to a luthier here in Portland who 
studied the the way it was built and some of the uh, the materials used in the the specifics types of uh, I don't know. He had a whole language of guitar building that I don't really understand, but he thinks it might be as early uh, as the nineteen or the eighteen fifties. Oh wow, which is quite an old guitar, and it's uh, he you know he kind of set it up a little bit for me. It's totally. Uh, in great shape and ready to ready to tour with and i am i am going to take it on tour it is the guitar that i recorded the the tangier sessions record with so i'm going to take the chance and just go out and see what i can do with it live and um you know to be uh it'll be new for all of us i think and so do, do, are there other guitars in your i don't want to call it an arsenal but let's call it an arsenal what, what the an hell? Ar- that's what it is it's an arsenal are there other guitars in your arsenal that have that struck you in the same manner that this one has in terms of its specialness, its feel? There's other ones that have struck me in, in manners, but certainly not, not this much. Um, there was something different about this one that uh, just was automatic. You know, you just know it right off the bat. Um, whereas previous guitars that I still have, I only have right now five guitars because that's really right now that's all i need actually it's it's more than i need but um and one of those was my first electric guitar that i got back in michigan in the in the 70s and that was a very special guitar at the time and it still is uh but this one had something about it that i still really haven't quite figured out and i'm not I'm not sure I want to figure it out. It doesn't matter, really. But it just has some weird presence that just kind of, I don't know, it's just something special that I don't understand, and that's what's great about it. Okay. I appreciate the explanation. I know it's it's sort of intangible, right? You can't quite articulate what it is, but there's you just know. It's a feeling. It's exactly what that's exactly true. Yeah. yeah. Now, you tend to have some fun with album and song titles. What does the Tangier session signify? Oh, well, I was actually in Tangier uh, in Morocco when I recorded the record. Um, so that's exactly what that is. It's, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Um, I had, uh, you know, I got the guitar in Geneva, and then shortly after that I, I took a trip to Thailand for four months just to, just to wind down a little bit, and I took the guitar with me uh, just so I'd have something to play. And then after that, I did a European tour, which would have been early last year, 2014. And uh, towards the end of the tour, somebody told me they could get me a show in in Tangier. And uh, I said, well, that's great. Let's try to do that. And, and uh, she did hook it up. And at the last minute, I was going to take my electric guitar to do the show, but at the last minute, I decided decided to take this new guitar instead and do the show with, with the small guitar. And uh, I happened to have a digital recorder with me. I had a week uh, to stay in Tangier in, a, in a, an apartment in the old city that somebody let me stay at. And in the evenings, I just started recording with the new guitar in a small room with Moroccan tiles on the walls. And just it just turned out great, I thought. And so that's that's where the record came from without really planning on recording a record. It just happened. And, uh, you know, such a creative title, huh? The Tangier Sessions. So uh, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Vaguely a letdown compared to some of your other titles, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that's a... uh, these, song, these recordings you made, are these the ones that actually made it on the record or were they like demos? Uh, these are the actual ones that I recorded. Uh, they were all entirely improvised. Um, there were a couple of the songs where it wasn't the first take. You know, there were like two or three takes. Um, but they were recorded in the order that you hear them on the new record. And it was one of those things, you know, I I, I enjoy doing a record in a studio as well. Um but, you know, when you're playing just solo guitar and you have a decent recorder, I also do a lot of my own home recording. Um, so it was just a simple way of doing things uh, that just made it, it just made it right. And, um, and I've already forgotten what the question was. <laughs> I don't remember what the question was either. No, I think I just asked you if these were demos or not. I think that's what it was. Uh, no, these were these were the actual uh, actual recordings that I made, and I uh, just put a little reverb on them in in the mastering and uh, had them mastered for Drag City. And mm-hmm. 
Yes, simple as that. Okay. Now, you mentioned that they were all improvised. Is it possible for you then to pinpoint any particular improv, or rather, any particular inspiration for this batch of songs? It sounds like you were doing a lot of traveling, uh, and no doubt that fed into your creative process, but can you, are you someone who actually will ponder where something has come from? Uh, on occasion, I can do that with with previous recordings. On on this on these uh, sessions, so to speak, there the only real inspiration I had going in was just the kind of the little historical notion of Tangier being a, a writer's paradise, uh, a creative uh, venue. You know, with Paul Bowles living there for years and years, and you know Burroughs spending a lot of time there. I could certainly see how there was a there was a creative energy in the air, just being in the old city and at the cafes and and uh, and I think I just applied those ideas not in a literary term but in a creative term to just doing the same with music as as they could have done with writing, but there wasn't any specific um, musical an absolute musical inspiration. I mean, I could have found it easy to play the entire record in a North African style, like making it sound like an oud or playing kind of North African scales and things like that, which I love to do. But I only really did that consciously on one of the pieces, whereas the other pieces, they just kind of flowed out more of uh, maybe the, the geography had something to do with it because it's right on the Mediterranean. You know, you can I could see Spain from my roof huh. on a cl- on a clear day. So there's a lot of Spanish elements. There's certainly some some gypsy elements in there too, and maybe more or maybe the first for the first time there's actually some classical elements that kind of creeped in that I'm really not known for attempting or or you know, ever doing. And that just kind of came in and I went with it. So other than that, that, I mean, that's really about it. Nothing more uh, than that. Why do you, why do you reckon that uh, classical elements made their way into, onto this record? I'm not sure. I mean, it was the first, uh, I think the, the song I'm referring to is the opening song. uh, And it's one of two songs on the record. The first two songs where because of this, strangeness of the new guitar uh i was not using a guitar pick and i've never done that before i've always i've always used a pick and so i was playing with my fingers and you know of course classical guitarists use their fingers they don't use picks either and so i don't know that just kind of creeped in and i wasn't thinking about it when i was playing it but when i first listened back to it i was hearing these classical elements and classical uh i don't i don't want to say scales or anything because i don't i don't really know and understand all that stuff but it just seemed more classical than anything i've ever done and um and i thought that was a nice change so i just went with it Hmm. you say you don't understand all that stuff when it comes to classical music are you a trained uh musician no, and, it, and when I say I don't understand that stuff, it kind of goes across the board. Um, I've never, I've never had any lessons, or I'm pretty much all self-taught. So I don't understand, um, I don't understand musical theory like you know, like maybe I should. I've never studied it. I mean, you pick things up just after playing for thirty-five years. You, you know, you know what what certain scales are and things like that. But I've never studied it. Can't read music. And at this point, I'm totally fine with that. I mean, I've, I think I've done all right. But uh, so, you know, so when a lot of people, like if I do interviews with guitar magazines, they want to ask all these technical questions about about theory and things like that. And, you know, I just start laughing because at the time I don't even know what they're talking about. Are, are you someone who is resistant to orthodox training? Are you? Are you it's not a path you've taken, but... Do you do you not see how it might be advantageous for you as a musician to maybe study here and there? Uh, I've thought about that in the past um, because I've you know growing up when I was first starting to play, I had uh, a lot of friends who also were playing and were more uh, into the that type of learning method. And I don't think I just ever had the discipline for it. And as things progressed, the you know the more I was playing in the early years, like back in the I guess in the early 80s, 
I got to the point to where I, yeah, I didn't want to have anything to do with any logical training method. Uh, not necessarily to be anti anything. It's just that when I could come up with interesting stuff on my own that, you know, maybe it didn't make sense at first, but it was, you get to a point when you're playing, especially in your early years where you kind of, if you're smart, you realize that you're just copying everybody else's, uh, styles. I mean, that's how we all learn, but you know, you get to a point where you make that realization and then realize that you have to kind of branch out and, and try take risks and try other things to maybe come up with your own sound or your own way of doing things. And I did head off in that direction and I think I've had a lot of luck um, along the way, but it's not absolute. I mean, I still catch myself doing things just because you hear something, you know, then you'll, you'll play something and say, Oh, well, that sounds exactly like, you know, fill in the blank. And so, and I don't know if that's, if everybody sometimes sounds the same because they do all go through a specific type of training. Um, I'm so, I'm not against it, but at this point I just, I think it's more interesting for me uh, to just experiment and see what comes out of, of that kind of approach. And I think it's, it's worked out. I wish kind of more people would do that. I, I'm a self-taught musician uh, on, on some level as well. And uh, as I've grown older and hang out with more people who are really, you know, adept at their instruments and we're kind of in a room together trying to play, <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing them converse uh, sort of theoretically and on some level, I feel now like I'm missing out. I don't quite know how to join that conversation and how to make... Uh, I, I'm Primarily, I'm a drummer. On some yeah. level, I don't need to be in, part, in some of those conversations. I kind of just am playing against... On some level, I'm playing against what other people yeah. are doing. But there is part of me now that is thinking... Because I, I think like you, I at some point was like, ah, screw it. I don't want to know how to do stuff properly. I just want to do it from a feel perspective or just like it's got to feel good. But at this point, it sounds like you've gone through this, right? Have you been in rooms or situations where maybe theory might have helped you, but you make it through? Uh, yeah, on occasion. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's it's the difference is, you know, when you're, when you're working with a, another group of people um, – I mean, in most cases, I could probably hang hang in, except when you get into like a lot of jazz and things like that, where you can tell that the people in in your room in the room, like you're saying, are conversing. Uh, they're following a, a set of patterns or perhaps a set of rules or ideas that you know I'm I'm not versed in, and if I try to improvise with that. You know, you get the you get the what I call black looks. You know, <laughs> just kind of give you the eye, and just like okay, what well, no. And uh, so yeah, I've been in that position, but at the same time, it's not. Uh, the thing is that that's that's why I prefer to play solo. <laughs> you know, sure. Because then you know that's never going to happen. But to to uh, contrast that, you know, when I was you know I played with with my brother and Charlie and Sun City Girls for like twenty six years. In that respect, there was a lot of improvisation all the time, and we weren't following any rules, even though Charlie was probably, you know, being the drummer, coming from a jazz and a, uh, you know, especially a bebop history. He went through the motions early on. He had, he knew what he was doing, but when we all played together, we threw all the rules out the window, and it worked with those three people. Um, but you get get another group of people who you have no experience playing with and that might be from training uh, or from, you know, some conservatory or whatever, then, yeah, I'm going to have problems with that. But uh, but I'm not afraid to try it. And uh, at this point, though, you know, I've been playing guitar now for 40 years or whatever. Um, I'm pretty set in my ways, but I'm still exploring. But I'm not gonna. Be, I'm not gonna go and try to learn anything from a book at this point. Sure, you know? sure, sure. Um, I want to ask about Sun City Girls in just a moment. But do you recall what actually first got you playing music? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, I started playing like in ninth grade, uh, or I started wanting to play. And it was in high school. Um, there were a couple other guys who had guitars that, 
you know, we're very popular, you know, popular with the ladies, you know, and the girls, you know, it's just like, yeah, okay, what the hell? I mean, that's typical high school stuff. Um, but of course I was listening to music at that age too. And, you know, it was kind of coming into my being and I figured that was kind of an interesting outlet to try to play guitar. And when I first started trying to play guitar, it felt kind of natural and it wasn't too long where I realized I, I had a pretty good ear and I could figure things out with just a little bit of work. And, um, and then, you know, right at the, about the same time, like I said, there were a couple people that were friends of mine who were very good guitar players and were a little bit patient with me and taught me a few chords maybe. Um, and then from there, I just kind of took it in my own direction. And so when did you move from that direction to Sun City Girls? How did that group begin? Well, um, my brother and I moved to Arizona from Michigan when we were 19 and 20, or either or 18 and 19, I can't remember. He, he's the older one. And when we first arrived in Arizona, we started doing... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Doing kind of the open mic scene, um, you know, playing cover songs and, and just, you know, trying to fit in and, and checking everything out. And then gradually we got exposed to the Phoenix, uh, well, certainly the punk scene in Phoenix, which was pretty interesting in the early 80s. But there were also some other bands within that, within that realm of just punk, the punk attitude that were playing more interesting things that wasn't you know just three chord punk rock mm -hmm. and then my brother started writing out of the blue just started writing these great songs that were different structures from your typical song structure and uh through the open mic scene we eventually met charlie who kind of threw a whole new wrench into things and we started just getting together as uh this thing called the freeform orchestra we would just you know, the rule was we just had to improvise, you know, and see what came out. And that's kind of how Sun City Girls started. There were a couple other people involved in that in the early days, too, that kind of lent some influence and uh, some inspiration in certain directions of guitar playing and just whatever. But uh, that's kind of how it started. And once we got together as a, that threesome, which would have been in probably 1980, um, things just kind of developed on a weird level to where we didn't want to be a punk band and we didn't want to be a, a rock band. We wanted to do something a little bit different and that just naturally happened that way. Huh. So, and then, you know, the more we tried that, because we were playing within the punk community, it was the only place we could get shows and we weren't popular at all. Um, and I think that also helped us realize being not being popular is a is a good powerful thing over an audience uh, because you can see that you're causing quite a reaction, hmm. and uh, we became uh, used to that also to where we would sometimes in the early days we'd go out of our way to cause a reaction no matter what it was, you know that was just part of the game to us you know let's make somebody react if they don't like it we're gonna at least get a reaction out of them. You you draw a connection between not being popular and drawing a reaction. Uh, do you mean like as an as a not popular band, 
did you think you were able to elicit a more honest reaction? I don't know if it was honest or not. I mean, um, the early days, you know, we were playing to punk crowds, but like, like I said, that's the only place where we could get gigs. And we were playing stuff that was just, I mean, we were, and half the time we were doing non-musical stuff. We were doing theater uh, as part of it as well. And we're doing this in front of kids who just wanted to bang heads and, and, and just, you know, slam dance. And they absolutely hated it. And, but it's what we wanted to do at first. And then we realized along the way that, well, we're, we're keeping ourselves honest. We're doing what we want to do. We're not going to, we're not going to cater to what these other people want us to do or what they expect. And it became, it did become a game for about the first uh, year to where, you know, we knew every time we were going to do a show with these other punk bands that there's going to be some um, tension. And it was, it just became very fun for us because we had no, we weren't scared of them and we had no worries about, you know, what was going to happen. We just did our things and, and watched them react in a way that kind of, gave us the power <laughs> <laughs> right i see that now at some i'm curious when this uh urge to try and do things on your own started after playing in a three-piece for as long as you did i mean i alluded to your first record salvador cali a little earlier but um is that around the time when you felt like you needed to to do something on your own um yeah, that's kind of when when things were starting in that direction. I mean, I wanted to do stuff with the guitar and kind of solo stuff that maybe wouldn't have fit into the band uh, ideas at that at that particular time. And my brother was had also done a little bit of solo stuff, um, so it was just a way to you know when the band wasn't active, I'd have something to do. But between the first record and the second record, six years passed. Uh, the second one didn't come out till 2004, and the first one came out in 1998, I think. Mm -hmm. So the band was still active during those years. But as things got, as things went on, um, our drummer got sick uh, more often than not, and um, he finally passed away in 2007. So between 2004. And the time he passed away, I was getting a little more active in, in solo work um, as just kind of a backup because the band wasn't doing quite as much. And then um, after Charlie passed away, then, of course, you know, that was just my main focus since then. So, Has it been uh, difficult uh, for you to not to know that you won't be able to play with Charlie and your brother again? Uh, well, I can play with my brother again. Yes, but, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's still hard to uh, fathom that because uh, I mean Charlie was pretty amazing, uh, not just as a musician, just as an all-around person. I mean, you know, we were really his only family. You know, we kind of he was never close to his family since we met him in the early '80s. So he was like he was like a brother, and um, he was just part of the part of the whole framework of you know the 26 years of the band and when he was gone it's just like you know it it's we can't just replace we can't replace him with another drummer and and, and expect anything close to the same thing yeah. um but at the same time you know as more time passes um you know you just accept it but uh you know there's not a day that goes by where i don't think about charlie because he was just such a huge part of of my musical uh education you know yeah and um and i talk with my brother a lot about what we can do in the future and and we do want to work together again um when we have time i mean we're all he's busy he's away half of the year in in egypt and and uh i'm always touring or doing something else so we want to try to find time eventually to write new material, not not really concentrate on old stuff, but write new material and maybe get a drummer involved if that's what's needed. It just won't be called Sun City Girls, and it probably won't be anything like Sun City Girls. But mm. so you know the the options are open. 
Okay, that's good to know. Uh, we were talking earlier about provoking audience reactions and, and other things. I, I saw you play with Bill Callahan in Toronto once, and it was quite memorable. Do you, do you prefer playing before your before your own audiences, or do you still have that fire, that, that idea of challenging or winning over someone else's fans? Is that something you look forward to? Well, I like, I like both. I mean, um, kind of for a while there... Um, I really kind of was going in that direction of, of getting on tours with a bigger act that would, you know, first of all, fill the room with people and most of which probably didn't, didn't know who I was. And, and I, I did like that idea of trying to present what I do to strangers and yeah, try to win them over. And if I don't win them over, that's, it's not a big deal, but you know, I certainly tried that. So I did that with Bill Callahan uh, on a couple tours. I did it with uh, Animal Collective and, and Will Oldham and, and even Devendra Banhart early on, which would just expose me to a new crowd. And for the most part, you know, I, you know, I did pretty, I did pretty good, and I enjoyed most of the shows and things like that. But recently, I've been doing mostly headline tours, and I like that as well. Uh, there's a little more expectation for me that way, but, um, but I'm not against, uh, going back and, and opening up for a bigger band, especially if it'll, you know, get me in front of more people. So, yeah, no, I, I could, that totally makes sense. You seem like, uh, I recall one of the things that struck me about your, your, the show I saw with Bill that you played was that you seem like a very funny person, but is your, is the music you make, is it a difficult music to convey humor with or is that what the live show is about well what i do solo is it's yeah it's not really that humorous uh but uh i've always well maybe not very recently but yeah maybe uh i always have the idea of incorporating some old sun city girls material that can be quite humorous with vocals and things like that especially if uh uh things aren't going well or, uh, you know, nobody's listening or, uh, which happens, you know, or you're just playing in a loud bar or something. And, uh, in playing, you know, 30 minutes of instrumental guitar music and then singing a song about, you know, porno shops or child rape. I mean, something that's going to get somebody's attention. Um, and where it might be, quite funny but to some people it might not be funny at all but it's going to be kind of one of those things like okay you guys have just been talking so i'm going to talk now <laughs> you know and i i found myself doing that quite a bit just for i don't want to say for shock value even though that's certainly a part of it but it's just like okay well i'll try this you guys like this you know and then they're certainly not going to like that or some people will just kind of start cracking up and say oh this guy's okay um, you know, so it just depends. But now I just kind of would rather just play my own instrumental music and see where it goes. But, uh, you know, I've always got a few tricks up the sleeve if I need. <laughs> There's always something maybe in the banter that might sneak up on someone. Yes. Yeah. I, I speak to people quite a bit about the paths they've taken in their creative lives and, and often of late in particular, the viability of what they're doing comes up in conversation. Um, it's maybe a little purient. How comfortable is your living? Are you are you are you satisfied? Do you feel like what you're up to is viable? Yeah, I mean, I have I have to look at it that way. I mean, it's what I do. Um, it's uh, I can't I can't imagine doing anything else other than really what I'm doing. I mean, I think I'm lucky to be able to to do what I or to get away with what I'm doing and kind of make a living at it. I mean, I'm certainly not a rich man and. Uh, I'm not even close, actually, but that's the trade-off. Um, so yeah, it's totally viable. Okay, just making sure. I'm I'm just looking out for you, Richard. I appreciate it. And why does why does Drag City make sense for you as a label? Well, they are they are one of my labels, um, and first of all, they're regardless of the business side of it, the people that work for Drag City are great people. That's always the best. That's the first thing with me. You know, I don't care what you do. You know, if it's if you're good people and I get along with you and I understand and it's and you know, that's the first step. 
everything else comes after that and their entire staff and that I've met over the years. And a lot of them, it's just the same staff, which means, you know, they're like a family. They're, they're easy to deal with. There's no, there's no BS. Everything's on upfront. They're, they're kind and they're smart people. They know what they're doing. So I first hooked up with them in, I think 2007. And then I, I did the polytheistic fragments record. And then I did freak of Araby in 2009 and then I hadn't done anything with them since then until the new record. And not because uh, of any ill will or anything. It's just like, you know, big labels have release schedules. So they can only release something if it fits into their release schedule. And sometimes I want to put other stuff out, which is what I've done. Yeah. And I, as, as I've done before that as well. So rehooking up with them for Tangier Sessions... Uh, really reminded me again of how good they are at what they do as far as publicity and promotion and uh, really getting involved with the release. And I'd kind of, it had been a while since I'd seen that because the other labels I was working with uh, didn't quite do that on the same level. So not, nothing against them, but that's just how it is. And so that's why I'm excited to have this particular record, which I'm proud of, quite proud of, come out again on drag city yeah yeah so it's uh and i hope to continue working with them until the end of time you know and it's great because i'm still free to put out other records with other people or put something out myself and that's what's great about it there's nothing you know there's no there's no contract so it's great it's nice to hear that's really nice to hear well you've got this uh, long tour looming uh and this new record do you can you tell us anything beyond that what's next for you well, after the U.S. tour, I am going to do the European tour for, on the record, uh, for the record. And then, um, you know, I'm not sure where it's going to lead uh, yet. Uh, I haven't really thought about my next, uh, my next release. Uh, like I said, I'm still, I'm still getting used to uh, this new guitar, and I think it's possible I might want to do some more with this in the future. But at the same time, you know... I love playing electric guitar. I also have another band project with uh, Ben Chasney and Chris Corsano called Rhonda, mm. uh, which is also a Drag City band, at least for now and probably for a while. And we just finished recording our third record, and I'm sure that'll be out by the end of the year. And uh, whenever that, whenever a Ronda record comes out, then it's kind of the same thing. You do a U.S. tour and then maybe a European tour, and then we don't see each other for a couple of years uh, because we all live in different places. So, so that's that's part of the thing. And uh, and I don't know if I can uh, get some more downtime and maybe some extra cash. I'd probably like to go traveling again just to get away. It's interesting. You're a hard touring musician, but tra I mean that's the distinction that some people don't recognize. There's the difference between touring and traveling, isn't there? Yes, there is. And uh, I like both. But uh, And, of course, touring can be considered traveling. But when I say go traveling, I mean go to, go to India for a few months or go to Southeast Asia and, and not work. You know, just, you know, have fun, you know, research things and just have a good time. Maybe think about future music that I could make. But uh, whereas touring is... You know, as much as I like it, it's it's work and it's hard work, and uh, it can get grueling. But uh, I'll probably continue to do that until I can't do it anymore because I kind of enjoy that. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Well, once again, the new album by Sir Richard Bishop is Tangier Sessions. It's out now via Drag City. He is touring all over the United States in March and April, including a stop in Vancouver at the Fox Cabaret on March 26th, and just this just in. I believe he will be in Toronto at Ratio on Wednesday, April 8th. That sounds about right. Okay. And he'll be in Montreal the following night. Okay, great, great. And uh, people can learn more about these things at dragcity.com uh, or sirrichardbishop.net. Uh, Richard, before we leave, is there a song from the new record that we can play? You can play any song you want from the new record. Uh, <laughs> let's see... Uh, how about um, Mirage? Nobody ever plays that one. Now, why? Why is that the only reason? You just want to do it because it's underutilized? Well, yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard, haven't heard that one out there much. So why not? And is there anything you can tell us about Mirage? 
it's it's uh it's probably the closest piece on there that's a blues kind of piece but almost like a like an african blues um that's not necessarily I, the idea i had going in with it but uh it stands out a little bit from the other pieces in that respect okay this is mirage by sir richard bishop richard it was a great uh, pleasure and an honor to speak with you i wish you the best uh, with everything thank you so much Vish. i appreciate it
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.